Jesus, your word stirs revival in us. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, revive me by your word. Revive me by your ordinances, your precepts, your principles, your law. And your word, when it's taken at face value, sparks renewal in us. It brings life. So Lord, we look at your word as authoritative and life-giving and teach us from your word this morning. I pray that in your name. Amen. All right. Really quickly, I want to draw your attention to this banner on my right, your left, or directly in front of you if you're Chico. Uh, that banner is our church's vision statement, which is, we've only had this particular vision for about 18 months, I think. Um, our vision is to make disciples that sustain revival, and that picture is of City Hall uh, here in Philadelphia, and that picture was taken by our own May newcomer, wherever May went. Where's May at? She went downstairs. Okay. So uh, our vision is to make disciples that sustain revival. Now, when our elder team was thinking through and praying through that vision statement and how that would be received by people and what it actually meant, we realized that sometimes people might get caught up on the word revival. Like, what do you mean by that? Do you mean you're going to have wild, crazy church services and push people over and do all sorts of other wild stuff? And I thought, that's not exactly us. Um, here's what we mean by revival. We had to define the word revival, and here's how we defined the word revival here at True Vine. Revival is spiritual renewal that leads to social change. Okay? Uh, spiritual renewal that leads to social change. Now, the way we came to that definition was by studying everything in the Bible that looked like revival and coming out with a principle that was common in all of those accounts. So, if you think of the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was in some way an Old Testament revivalist. God did something in Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah had a spiritual renewal. He then went to the city of Jerusalem, which had been just destroyed. It was literally torn down in ruins. There were, the only people living there were people who were not wealthy enough to be exiled. They left all of the people in poverty behind. So the city was just poverty. The walls had been torn down. The buildings were in shambles. There was, it was just in a horrible situation. Nehemiah went into that city. The spiritual renewal that had happened in his heart, he began to lead other people into, and they rebuilt that city. That city had been torn down for years. It had not been rebuilt. And because of the work of Nehemiah, they rebuilt the walls of the entire city in 52 days. So they were able to accomplish more as the result of a spiritual awakening than they could do through just uh, civic engagement, if you understand what I'm saying. And so Nehemiah fits that example. I also think of King Josiah. We just went through the, all the kings of Israel like uh, less than a year ago. King Josiah, who I named my son after, by the way. Um, King Josiah was one of the best kings uh, of Judah that there ever was. And when he was the king, he himself underwent a spiritual renewal. When King Josiah became the king when he was eight years old. So he wasn't exactly a mature follower of Yahweh. But when he was in his 20s, he didn't even have a copy of their Bible, which would have been basically just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was lost. 
Well, they found that copy, brought it to Josiah. He realized what it was, that the people had not been following God's word. He tore his clothes off. I don't know why they did that back then. But they, he, he repented, and then he led the people into the renewal, and he went through as the king. He had authority to tear down all the altars and statues and monuments in the, in the nation. He tore them down. He desecrated them in a good way. Uh, and he defiled these false places of worship. So his personal spiritual renewal led to a change in society and in culture. Even in Acts chapter 2, the, the story of Pentecost that many of you are familiar with, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles. They preach the gospel, so they experience spiritual renewal. They preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Thousands of people come to Jesus, and it changes Jerusalem, and eventually ends up changing the Roman Empire, and we are still in the ripple effects of that moment now, because the gospel somehow made it to Philadelphia from Jerusalem in 2,000 years. So as you look through revivals, even historical revivals, like the, the Welsh revival in 1905, or the Pentecostal revival in 1906, or re, re, there was a revival in northern Uganda that I got to visit for about a week that was made a huge impact on me. Uh, things that God is doing in the United States now it impacts, if it's truly a move of God, it's going to impact the world somehow. There's a church on the West Coast that is experiencing renewal. They're seeing people come to Jesus. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. People are flying to that, that place to be a part of what God is doing there. There are so many people flying in and out that the church got to this point where they were like, maybe we need our own jet. Just listen. Maybe we need our own plane. You know, you guys know people do this, right? Because I know you watch them on TV. I don't watch them on TV, but I know you watch them on TV because I'm too jealous. I'm still trying to pay a car off. So the church got to the point that they flew something like, their staff flew something like 10 million miles in one year. And they were like, maybe we need a plane. And then they had this idea. What if, in, what if instead of buying a plane, we gave that money to our local airport so they could expand their services? So they did that. And so now the whole community benefits from the church. Does that make sense? And so they had to go through like the local civic channels to say, we would like to give you X million of dollars so you can expand the airport to better facilitate the people that are coming to visit us. And everyone wins. That's spiritual renewal that leads to social change. Now, I'm not exactly going to be making any donations to the Philadelphia airport anytime soon, but I hope you get my drift that when God is up to something, it's not just for inside the church walls on Sunday morning. It should be leaking and cracking out and touching the community and so when we say spiritual renewal that leads to social change, these are the kind of things we have in mind. So how does this tie into the Sermon on the Mount? Well, after Jesus got through the Beatitudes, blessed are these, blessed are those, blessed are this, he gets to these two statements about the identity and the purpose of a disciple of Jesus. And he uses two word pictures to tell us who we are. The Bible is so useful for learning what God is like and also learning what you and I are like. The Bible tells us what's real about the human condition and the human experience. 
Jesus is saying to his followers, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I want to start with just the first two statements from verses 13 and 14. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Now, he is not saying, do your best to be these things. He's saying, you are. Whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, whether you agree with it or not, your identity already is salt and light. Then he elaborates on that to make this point. So don't be useless salt and don't be hidden light. You already are these things. So I love this about Jesus. He's actually just saying, just, just be you. You know, he, he's not saying, okay, muster up this light, strive after this saltiness. He's saying you already have it, stop shutting it down. Stop losing your taste, your saltiness. Stop covering over your light. Just shine. Just be salty in the ancient use of the term, not the modern use of salty. We got that figured out. So, let's get into what it means to be the salt of the earth. Jesus says, uh, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The New Living Translation says it this way, have the qualities of salt. Have the properties of salt. Well, what are the qualities or the properties of salt? So salt accomplishes certain things. Number one, it seasons food, right? Salt is the most common seasoning in the world, and um, people use salt all the time to season their food. My favorite food as a kid growing up was Uncle Ben's Minute Rice with salt and butter, because I live on the edge. I, I could probably still eat that. When, when my mom said, what do you want for your birthday? Rice with salt and butter. Um, salt is such a common flavoring, it changes everything, right? I mean, and you all probably have table salt somewhere in your house. And that table salt is in no way like the salt Jesus was talking about. The table salt you use has been cleaned three times, broken down into fine granules. They've added chemicals to it so it doesn't clump together, and it's delicious. And it's why we all have high blood pressure. That and the 76ers. So the salt that we eat, the salt that we eat doesn't lose its saltiness because it's purified. The salt that we eat is 97% pure. But the salt that Jesus was referring to, because Jesus lives by the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is so salinated, so much salt in the Dead Sea that nothing can live in it, everything floats, right? And so they, the salt they were using was these big old rocks of salt. They probably weren't white. They were, pro they were so contaminated with other uh, pollutants like uh, other minerals, 
rust, dirt, which you still to this day, you can get like pink salt, Himalayan pink salt. That pink or orangish hue is just like rust and other minerals. It's not the essence of a rose, which is what I like to think it is. It's, it's rust and other minerals. Um, but salt flavors. Salt also provides traction. We know this living in the Northeast. In the, in the winter, we literally put salt not just on our soft pretzels that we have for breakfast, but also on the roads, right? Uh, we don't even salt our sidewalks. We just follow your kids around with vacuums on Sunday mornings when we serve soft pretzels. And we take that salt and throw it out on the sidewalk. It works all summer. That's my sideways way of saying watch your kids. Um, but we salt the roads, right? Because it has another property where it breaks down ice and snow and keeps the roads safe. Salt also has this property where it calms your stomach. When I was a kid, the only medicine we had in the house was saltines and 7-Up. You know, if you woke up sick, didn't want to go to school, here's saltine and 7-Up for breakfast, get on the bus. That's, that was my experience. Uh, just this week, my daughter came down one night, uh, like 9.30. She'd been put to bed, but she came down because she had an upset tummy. I gave her crackers. Within 20 minutes, she was good to go. I don't, the salt settles your stomach, or, or it has a placebo effect. I don't know. In any event, it got her to bed. Uh, salt also makes you thirsty. And a salty Christian has the ability to make other people thirsty for God. To have that effect on people where they begin to see the work Jesus is doing in your life and they get thirsty for that. They want some of that. But most, most likely the property that Jesus is referring to in this passage is not the flavor or the calming of the stomach or the traction that it can provide. Jesus is probably talking about the preservative impact of salt. You know, they did not have uh, refrigerators and freezers back then, and so they would pack meat and other food products in salt to preserve the food, and that it would keep the food from going bad or going rotten. And that's most likely what Jesus is referring to when he says, hey Christians, you're the salt of the earth. You're the ones I'm putting in here to keep things from getting rotten. Because things are, because of sin entering the world through the fall of Adam and Eve, things are going to decay and decompose. That's why stuff falls apart over time. That's why when you build a house and don't do anything to maintain it, it doesn't get better over time, does it? It falls down over time. If you have a car, your car doesn't get better over time. It falls apart over time. Because we live in this fallen world where the trajectory is decomposition and decay and so jesus is saying i have placed you my disciples in the world as a preservative to keep things from decomposing and decaying too quickly your job is to restrain the decay of the earth and the world in in culture and in society does that make sense so that's why we're put here one of a couple reasons why we're put here. Now, can salt lose its saltiness? The answer is yes. The way salt loses its effect is through, and I'm talking about literal salt here, impurities. When salt becomes impure, it no longer 
has the attendant effect. It doesn't have the taste anymore. It doesn't dissolve ice anymore. Um, it doesn't settle stomachs anymore. It doesn't preserve anymore. In fact, impure salt not only doesn't preserve, it contaminates. Last thing you want to do is put a bunch of dirty salt around some meat, or some raw meat, right? You're, it's going to get worse, not better. So here's the warning Jesus is giving us when he says, if the salt becomes tasteless or loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. He's warning us. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The way salt loses its taste, loses its effect, is through impurities. When it gets other minerals and other things mixed in. The way that you and I introduce impurities into our lives is through compromise. Specifically compromise with sin. I'm not talking about compromising on what you're making for dinner. You know, if, you, if one person wants pepperoni on their pizza and another person wants mushrooms, you're allowed to compromise. In fact, you better be able to compromise on things like that. Where, you know, that kind of stuff. But when it comes to compromising with sin, this is the kind of stuff that costs us our saltiness. This is the kind of stuff that causes us to lose our preservative effect. When the one institution that God has ordained for the preservation of the world begins to compromise with the decay and the decline, there's nothing then to stop. And we compromise through a variety of ways. Um, one of the ways we compromise are through our, either our ethical or moral convictions. When we know in, inherently that something either is or is not okay with God, but we compromise anyway. When, when Christians cut corner, ethical and moral corners, we compromise some of our saltiness. We compromise some of our preservative effect. When we know what the Bible says about sexuality and compromise, and that has to go, do with heterosexual and homosexual sin across the board. When we know what the Bible says about the equality of everyone who is created in God's image, but we compromise on that and start ranking one group as superior and one group as inferior. When we compromise there, we lose our testimony. When we know what the Bible says about stewardship and how we should spend money and how we should manage resources, when we know what it says and we compromise anyway, we lose our ability to preserve a righteous and holy standard on the earth. So compromise is the thing that makes us lose our taste or lose our salty attributes. The opposite of compromise is what we call consecration. Consecration is when a person decides, I am going all in with Jesus, no matter how inconvenient or costly or difficult that might be, I'm going all in. And let me just say, you only think that way on the front end of the decision. This is going to be inconvenient. This is going to be difficult. This might make me miserable. Christians who are fully devoted to Jesus are less miserable than the people who have a foot in both places. I don't, I don't know that I've met a more miserable person than someone who's like half saved, <laughs> if there is such a thing. And there probably, there isn't. But 
when you have enough of God that you no longer enjoy your sin, but enough sin that you're no longer enjoying God, you're miserable. You, you ought to just go the whole way. Right? Don't be lukewarm. Don't be, don't be halfway with this. this. I mean, an illustration for this is marriage. Marriage works best when both partners are all in. If one or both are not all in, and they have the side of their eye, looking around, wondering about that ex-girlfriend or boyfriend, wondering about this or that, that makes marriage difficult. And following Jesus is the same way. When you're following Jesus for now, it's going to be miserable. It only works one way, all the way. You want to go all the way with Jesus, fully devoted to God. Um, you do not have to be perfect to follow Jesus. In fact, you're not going to be. So take a deep breath. You're not going to be perfect following Jesus that is not even Jesus' expectation of you to be perfect in your behavior. His expectation is that you be wholly devoted to him. We're talking pe perfection in the sense of wholeness. That I'm not giving Jesus 95% of my life or 90% of my life. The perfection comes with I am giving him 100%. I'm still going to screw up. I'm still going to have bad moments. My behavior is not going to be perfect, but my heart is devoted fully to him. That's Jesus' expectation, and it's also Jesus' worth. He, he is worth all of that. So if you screw up, you know, repent and move on. Really, the more important thing is, is your heart fully devoted, or are you leaving room for compromise, which costs you some purpose as you fulfill, as you become salt, these, uh, as you live out being the salt of the earth. Jesus compares a disciple who does not live out the values of the kingdom with unsalty salt or salt that cannot fulfill its purpose. Next thing Jesus says is that we are the light of the world. So we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus is really strongly communicating that we got to get out of the church sometimes, in fact, most of the time, and engage the world, engage society, engage the culture, right? Stop hiding from it, which is actually the point of the light on the earth saying, stop hiding. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So a city on a hill, you know, even back then, we have light pollution nowadays. You can see Philadelphia from miles away, right? It's orange at night. Um, it's the glow off gritty. You can see it. So, okay, only I thought that was funny. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have light pollution back then, but they still had cities with lights candles and fires and stuff like that. And if a city was up on a hill, you st could still see it. There was no way to hide a city except for to put a wall around it or extinguish the lights. Uh, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So uh, they did not cover their lights with lampshades the way we do nowadays. Their lights were put up on a high, like a pedestal, so that it would project as much light to light the house as possible. Because unlike us who have like 30 light bulbs in our houses, 
they had a few candles or lamps and they had to position them strategically to get the most light out of those lamps. They certainly didn't cover them. In fact, to cover them would be a waste of oil because you have to burn oil to get the light going, so why would you do that? Covering an oil lamp would extinguish it immediately because it would run out of oxygen within a few seconds. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus actually says in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. So which one is it, Jesus? Are you the light of the world or are we the light of the world? And you guys know the answer is both. Because unlike us who will flip a light switch on and light up the house, they would have to make a fire, stick a stick or something in a fire, and then take that flame and move it from lamp to lamp to lamp. Jesus is the origin flame, the light of the world, and then he moves from one person to another person to another person. So he is the origin of the light of the world, but we also, if we've been regenerated, are the light of the world. Invisible light is as useful as tasteless salt. Hidden lights do not fulfill their purpose, neither do hidden Christians. Christians that have no public testimony are like a hidden light. About two weeks ago, I got the pleasure of visiting our very own Shay Akinaso at work. I didn't even believe he had a job. I thought Abby just kept him around. Shay just started working at Comcast, the big building downtown that looks like a walkie-talkie. So Shay works there, and I wanted to see what that building looked like, and Shay got me in, and man, it was a process. I had to, it's like signing your kids into children's church. I had to get scanned and all sorts of stuff and escorted, and so we got to go there and see the place, and they have their own cafeteria, and we went to the cafeteria for lunch, and you know, Shay kept putting me on the spot. He kept introducing me to everybody as his pastor, and I was like, dude, just be cool, you know, like. Because, you know, people get all funny when they find out you're a pastor. So we get into the cafeteria and uh, we get lunch and we sit down. And I don't really know, you know, should we supposed to pray for our food or, you know, I don't get out much. <laughs> Most of my time is spent with Christians. So I know, like, we can always pray. We're fine praying for the food. We're at Comcast. And I'm sure they're taping and recording everything we're doing. So. <laughs> So it's time to pray for the food, and of course I have to do it because I'm the pastor. And uh, so I'm like, all right, I'm not going to get in trouble. So I keep my eyes open and my head up like this, and I'm like, Lord, thank you for this food. We bless it in Jesus' name. And while I'm making sure that it looks like I'm not praying, I see Shay has his head bowed. And I don't know if it was the glare off of the bald spot or what it was, but his bowed head convicted me. And I put myself in the shoes of all of you who don't go to work at a church with Pastor John Eric and May and Andrew and Carrie every week, but who go to places like uh, hospitals and schools and Comcast and ABC and all these other places where you do have to be aware of things like that and, and how that's going to be communicated. When Jesus says that you are the light of the world, he is saying, 
Do not hide what he's done in your life. Now, don't cram it down people's throats, but don't hide it either. I love that he uses the illustration of light because light doesn't have to try to be light. It just shines. You know, like if you work in a situation like I've explained and um, if, if you get anxious and all tense, like, oh, should, I should say the right thing and what should I say? Let me rehearse this. And oh, you're not being light. You're trying to make it happen. You're trying to manufacture something. I think what Jesus would say to you is this thing needs to happen organically and naturally. Just shine. Just be you full of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? You don't have to strategize and plan. You should pray. You should prepare. But you don't need to have a script. Okay? So, um, that's the... First time she's ever convicted me. Je Jesus says in this passage, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So <laughs> Jesus says here, let them see your good works. Now in a few verses, Jesus is going to say, do not do your good works to be seen by men. Okay. So which is it, Jesus. Well, the issue isn't really whether we do good works in public or in private. The issue is, who do you want to be seen through these good works? Because when we get to, don't do your good works to be seen by men, and then compare it to this verse, this is the bottom line. You better be doing some good stuff because you're a follower of Jesus. Just don't do it so that you get credit. Okay? You want to do it in such a way that people are pointed to Jesus. There is uh, an importance to when we do you know, good works or good deeds, that we do them in the name of Jesus. Uh, I think it's awesome when any group feeds people that are hungry or clothes people that are naked or provides housing or does whatever, but the church has to do it in the name of Jesus, and we have to figure out some way to do that. Um, some way to let people know we're doing this because of Jesus. Uh, this morning... Um, my kids made my wife breakfast in bed for Mother's Day. And by my kids, I mean I. You know a five-year-old and an eight-year-old aren't making an omelet. Even though the omelet looked like a five-year-old and eight-year-old. It was kind of like I couldn't decide between omelet and scrambled eggs. But So, I'm using myself as the hero in this story. I did this good deed, but my kids got the credit, right? It was actually, it was only because of my kids that it got done at all, right? If my kids weren't there, <laughs> I would not, I hate to say it, not have made my wife breakfast in bed. Hi. She's out in the hallway listening. So, <laughs> that's what anniversaries are for. So... <laughs> It is only because of Jesus that you and I do good works. And it's okay to, in fact, not only okay, it's right to deflect credit to Jesus. Because we wouldn't be doing these things if it wasn't for Jesus. Now, here's the thing about light, being the light of the world. And you already know this intuitively. 
Not everyone likes light. You know who doesn't like light? Sleepers and sinners. My kids don't like it when I come in at 6 in the morning and flip the lights on, and they don't like that. I don't like it either. They roll over, cover their head. You know, they hide from the light because they're, they're sleeping, and there are people that are spiritually asleep that do not want to be waken up. The other people that don't like it are people that are trying to do some shady stuff. People that are totally just in sin and they want to be hidden. They do not want their stuff to be exposed. They want to hide. You know who likes light? People that are searching. People that are actually looking for God want light. So you're going to have to be able, you're going to have to be wise enough to discern what's going on with this person. Are they sleeping, sinning, or searching? That's how they're going to respond to light. You gotta shine the light anyway, but you know some people are gonna love it, and other people people aren't. And sorry, you were never promised a nice life anyway. All right, so the Zondervan Study Bible summarizes the salt and the light statements this way: It says the point of both metaphors is that Jesus's followers should positively impact the world. After the countercultural beatitudes, the salt and light sayings remind Jesus's followers not to isolate themselves from other people but to model discipleship in the midst of a fallen world. So here's the bottom line. You do not fulfill your destiny or purpose as salt and light by coming and sitting in these seats for 90 minutes on Sunday. In fact, it's not even really until you go through those doors, down a flight of stairs, and out those front doors that you start fulfilling your purpose. Your purpose is not keep these seats held down. You fulfill your purpose when you leave this place and go to your families or go to your workplaces or schools or neighborhoods and begin to actually be salt and light. This is where you come to get equipped. This is where you come to grow. This is where you come to mature. When you leave those doors, you'll find purpose. And until you take what is in here and in here, out there, you won't really be fulfilling your purpose. You won't find fulfillment. You won't find satisfaction if you keep it private. You are not called to be a monk. You're called to be a missionary. Maybe across the street. But you don't want to hide it. Just like a, a light under a bowl is not fulfilling the purpose of light, a Christian in hiding is not fulfilling the purpose of a Christian. A Christian who has no properties of salt is not fulfilling the purpose of a Christian. Jesus is preventing his movement from becoming a private monastic religion only He's designed discipleship to overflow into the world. And that brings us back to this. Revival is spiritual renewal that leads to social change. And as we wait on God, and as we you know, anticipate that God is going to do work in us, we better just already have a paradigm that that work he does in us is going to take us places. It's going to put us in situations that 
maybe right now would feel very uncomfortable. Maybe we would even feel like ill-equipped for these situations. But you just better believe Jesus isn't going to come land on you so that you feel warm fuzzies. He's going to do stuff in your life so that you can be the beginning of a chain reaction that impacts someone else, that impacts someone else, that impacts someone else. So you don't live in isolation. Okay? So here's how I would like to conclude today with a very practical but symbolic gesture. If you're willing, I'm going to invite you to stand and to communicate that the church should be others and outward oriented. I want to ask you all to face out. So we, in churches, we normally like face the front. Um, that's just out of necessity. Today we're going to face out. So you've got to find a window or something. So if you want, stand and look out into the community. I know you can't really see into the neighborhood. I get it. You're just looking at curtains and frosted glass. I get it. But this is a reminder that salt and light are outward oriented and they are others oriented. This is going to go against any narcissistic tendencies that you might have. This is going to go against any me first tendencies that you might have. And we're just going to take about one minute to pray for our communities. Pray for your jobs. Pray for your families. Um, we're going to take about one minute to do that and then I'm going to just uh, conclude in prayer and send us home. So you can just, you know, whisper, mutter your prayers. We don't need, you don't need to scream or shout them or anything like that. But pray for the 166 hours a week you spend outside of this building that Jesus would use you as salt and light. All right, before we wrap up, I'm going to issue just one quick encouragement or challenge. You can face whatever direction you want. I don't care. Um, I said this at the first service, and I feel like it needs to be said again, and it's not because it's Mother's Day. Women, the church needs your voice. This sermon is for everybody. But women, I want to encourage you and challenge you to begin to use your voice as salt and as light. To call out injustice, call out unrighteousness, um, call out on behalf of the unborn, call out on behalf of people that God has put you in their path. Um, there is like a, for some reason in the church, like a caged up roar that is for some reason not being let out. And I just want you to know it, that roar is loosed here. And we are, as a church, relying on you as well to have a voice, a prophetic voice, in our culture, in our society. I know some of you are like, it's about time. Someone have said that, and you weren't waiting. <laughs> but some of you are waiting, and I'm saying you don't have to wait anymore. Uh, do 
what God made you to do. So Lord, we want, we want desperately to be effective salt and effective light. And I'm asking Jesus that you would use us in that way. It's your design that we would be salt and light. Lord, we want to preserve decay and decline. Uh, we want to preserve culture against those things. We want to preserve our communities against those things. We also want to shine light in a way that is compelling and draws people to you and illuminates places where there's darkness, Lord. We want to give people an accurate picture of the terrain that they're walking on, God. So I pray for the salt and light uh, pictures that you give us in the Sermon on the Mount to be real and to be deep in our souls. I pray that, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Moms, if you're a mom, we have begonias up here. Grab one. Uh, feel free to hang out with us, spend some time with us. Thank you for joining us this morning. Have a great week.